0: Should we just go right into the Q and A here, Pastor? Yeah.
1: If you have a question, we'd like to uh, hear and record that. So just raise your hand. I'll come over with the mic.
0: Who'd like to be first? All right. Who'd like to be second? Oh, okay. Over there.
1: Thank you. Um, Just uh, kind of a two-part question. One. when you talk to people, do you find that, because um, sometimes trying to have answers to all these questions um, might seem overwhelming or it's like, okay, I'm going to ask them um, what do you mean by that? And then you'll get an answer and it's like, okay, ooh, you know, like you were just kind of explaining where you have to ask for more information. But have you found that generally um, there's maybe, you know, five, seven, ten things that people tend to answer back? That if you kind of can study them and understand them, then it will help you really navigate much better.
0: You mean uh, the, the 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 kind of categories of objections or challenges to yeah, you know, so it's, yeah, so
1: they might come in different forms because people articulate um, differently, and so and then as a follow up question, then would, are there certain aspects or verses or things from scripture? Um, that you would recommend, you know, I know, you know, God's Word is is great, and so we should always be reading and, and getting right, time in the Word. But are there sure. certain things that would really help us, you know, to navigate even better? So if it's like, wow, if you really freshen up on these kind of principles, um, it in will scripture. help. Yeah. Well, I found, uh, let me answer the second half first, because
0: um, I think, and, I, and I'm like a lot of people. You ask me about my prayer life and my, you know, quiet time or whatever, and I hang my head. Uh, because it's never up to snuff and never up to par. But I've been working more lately of having more consistent time of thoughtful reflection every single day in the Word. And it may not even be a lot, but a little. Uh, But uh, it's thoughtful. I'm not just reading through it. I I did a half a chapter of Proverbs today, for example. I don't just go, 17 verses, check, I'm out of here, you know, that kind of thing. I'm pausing and I'm trying to reflect on it. And it was chapter 30 today, so that's the chapter that has all these four three things that are odd four things that are weird kind of thing you know the ant and the and the scorpion and the lizard and so there wasn't a whole lot of stuff for me in there but one verse that really stood out so i reflected on that now the the, the significance of that is i've been amazed at how many times something has come up and and it's i can draw from what i just read that day or the day before It's just one of those coincidence things, you know. So if my mind is being tuned to reality by drawing from the food of God's word, then I am more prepared to answer a person. Now, that doesn't mean that I am always spouting Bible verses. I'm not. Sometimes I will, but I don't want to sound like I'm a walking Bible verse reference thing and thinking if I just keep spitting these verses out, then it's going to have a magical impact on people. I'm trying to use whatever references that I can effectively. So there was a case where I had some work done in my car, and there was a little um, thing on the cash register, and it was some kind of Eastern mystic statement. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it said... Uh, it was just, it was some foolishness. It was just foolishness. And in fact, I asked a question of the girl behind the cash register about it to try to show, well, if this is true, then, then that means I should never feel bad about doing something bad. Like, don't let anybody guilt you or something like that. Well, what if you're doing bad things? And then you say, don't let anybody guilt you. Then feel good about doing bad things. And she said, oh, yeah, I never thought about that. And then I said, how about this? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And she said, oh, wow, who said that? (laughs) I said, Jesus of Nazareth. I didn't say the Bible says. I said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that statement, I think, is a powerful statement. And uh, they, you may find, if you know this verse, and it's got a certain rhythm to it, so it's, it's easy. For, I didn't ever memorize it. I just remember it. And, uh, and you may find an opportunity where you know, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's what Jesus said. Do you ever think about that? So there's a, there's, a, there's a way you can work these things in, but I, I, I want to encourage you to try to work them in artfully. Um, secondly, uh, the, the like seven main categories, there, there are some standard things that right now in our culture are big issues, if that's what you mean, where you're going to get a lot of pushback on these issues. You're going to get pushback right now on homosexuality. That's number one. That is number one. Now, I don't think that homosexuality is a really high, important theological issue, personally, but it's not in any creeds, you know, and that kind of stuff. However, it is the place where the culture is taking its stand, and it's demanding that we not be faithful to Christ. They draw a line in the sand. It's called tolerance. They say, cross this line and celebrate diversity and be one of us, and we'll like you. And if you don't cross that line, we're going to make it really, really hard for you. We're going to hurt you, actually and that's beginning to happen more and more and more and in this state they have already officially declared that same-sex unions are exactly the same as heterosexual unions there's no difference between same-sex couples and heterosexual couples and that's going to influence everything that happens in your primary school education about any of these issues because now by law they cannot represent one any better than the other and so they are going to come out and be promoting homosexuality aggressively. And it's already happening. Uh, anyway, I don't want to get into that. that so that's an issue right there. Um, and my encouragement to Christians is that you, you, the, the thing I want Christians to do is not fold. My main concern isn't that they have this great apologetic against the issue. I don't want them to give in to it. And there are Christians dropping like flies that are crossing the line. All right. What's the big deal? Doesn't hurt me, man. And they don't understand what's at stake, not just culturally, but what's at stake spiritually for them by giving in here. Because once they say, okay, oh, you're going to call me a name? All right, I'll do what you want because I don't want to be called a name because that really, like, bums me out. (laughs) Yeah, and then they're going to say, and by the way, that Great Commission thing, Jesus is the only way, and this is the second one. You're a bigot, narrow-minded, arrogant, intolerant for that too. Ooh, there's that word again. Okay, I'll join you guys. You know, and this is one that matters. This is everything. I mean, do you see? If you can just step back from the scene, can you see kind of think with a military mind right now? Okay, if you were if you were God's enemy, can you see the brilliance of this maneuver? In terms of spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare isn't about demons sitting on posts somewhere and you got to bind them and loose them and chase them away. It's a battle for ideas. We have weapons of our warfare that are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are casting down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Spiritual warfare is principally a battle for ideas, and I can stand back and I can see how these ideas are in play, and I think, oh, man, that was a brilliant move by the devil. I mean, we used to argue, oh, by the way, that was uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, that passage is cited, so you should mark it and check it out. But um, um, we, we used to talk about whether uh, who's right, the atheists are right, They got the truth. No, the Christians got the truth. No, the atheists got the truth. Then this idea came around, uh, there is no truth. (laughs) Can you see how that's an end around the whole discussion? It's like, what's the sense of talking about this if there's no truth anyway? That's kind of the postmodern move. So, wow, there's brilliance in these things. And if you are reflective, you can see this maneuver. I can see it so clearly. And Christians are falling for this stuff. And so I want Christians to stay strong on that. Um, so the, the, the idea of uh, Jesus being the only way, the homosexuality issue. Incidentally, there's a, a two-piece article that I wrote. You can find it on our website, and it was our solid ground. So if you sign up for this, this is the kind of thing you'll get in your email. It's called No Other Name. And I really encourage you you go and just download it from your computer tonight and then read it. No Other Name. There are two issues, part one and part two. And you could kind of uh, do it in the search box at str.org. And I deal with pluralism and I deal with religious inclusivism. And there are two variations of the same idea that all roads lead to Rome, spiritually speaking. But inclusivism is found only in the church. And it's eating up the church. There people, Christians are just giving up on the gospel. So please read that. Um, let's see. The evolution issue is big. Uh Multiculturalism, and you know who are we to say who 's better relativism that's 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 uh, w- there is no truth or there 's no moral truth it 's just a matter of individual opinion uh, that's the, I had a, a debate at the University of Washington uh, probably eight or nine years ago on that issue right on campus um, with one of the faculty so I del- that, that was on the relativism issue. Let me just think. Um, The the idea that Jesus and the whole thing about the life of Jesus is just a reiteration of of ancient uh, myths of dying and rising gods, that is huge. Uh, Zeitgeist is a movie you can find on the Internet. Uh, Religulous, that Bill Maher documentary played out this concept. And um, and a lot of Michael Shermer. Every time he debates, he raises this. And what's amazing for somebody like Michael Shermer to raise this, who's lettered, he's got a PhD in sociology, is there is no substance to this objection whatsoever. It's just completely false, completely false. It's not only that there are other problems. I mean, it's false on, on the merits. There th- these ancient dying and rising messiahs there weren't. There were no such things. Um, and they take these agricultural gods who die in the fall and rise in the spring you know in the ancient near East as to be like a metaphor of a resurrection it's just it 's nonsense. I wrote an article about that too called Recycled Redeemer and you can get that at str dot org so that 's a big one as well so those are some of the uh, the main ones. Um, Abortion, huge, but it's not talked about so much, except for in political cycles, but uh, election years. But it's uh, that is a, the, the number one. This, you know, look, social justice is a real popular thing in communities now, and the, the sexual trafficking and slave trade, human slave trade. That's that that is so evil. It's hard to even countenance it. But I will just tell you, it is nothing compared to the evil of abortion. You know how many people we lost on 9-11? 2,973 people died, which is about the same number of children that die every single day in this country by legalized abortion. So just keep it in mind. So there, there, there you've got a handful of things. By the way, if you're talking to people, you're going to know the answer to that question because they'll tell you what bothers them. They'll tell you. Yes? So,
1: well, I was just going to comment.
0: I was having a conversation with a lady just the other night who brought up, I think, the same thing that you were just talking about. She was talking about other religions that have
1: similar stories, like you were talking about recycling or yeah. other religions prior to Christianity right. that dealt with resurrection right. and et cetera. So, can you expound on that a yeah, little bit more? Yeah. Uh, well, because I would I ask the question. I'd say, what exact
0: about. What religions were there that, that you're talking about? I would ask for clarification, and they were what? Now, Mithras... That was one that she mentioned to me. But the resurrection accounts of Mithras come up 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, A.D., not B.C. So the one that looks like Jesus comes up after Jesus' time. It looks like Mithras got his information from Jesus, not the other way around. So where can I get more information about... Well, you can read the article that I mentioned. Okay. Uh, And it's called... It is free. You know, it's easy. You go. You you have it tonight. Uh, Called Recycle Redeemer. Um, Lee (laughs) Strobel's written a book called uh, The Case for the Historical Jesus, I think it's called. Um, And there are other resources like that. But those two are going to be adequate. I have footnotes in my own piece that you can follow up if you want. But... um, the most the the, uh, the the most expansive piece is about this long, and it's written by a guy named Turgiev or something. He's a Swedish guy, and he says he just simply says there's no relationship between the two. I cite him in the in the article, so you'll give a. Plus, there's another there's a logical problem to this. The first time I heard this really presented was Michael Shermer in a debate. And, um, and I thought of this problem immediately. It just occurred to me immediately. <clears throat> what if I came up to Michael Shermer and I said, I introduced myself and I said, Greg Colby, say, I'm Michael Shermer. I said, no, you're not Michael Shermer. Yes, I am. No, you're not. You can't be. Why not? Because I have met in the last six months seven people who told me they were the Michael Shermer and they weren't. So therefore, you're not. Now, that's the logic of this objection, by the way. You have these other... Let's just say that the accounts largely... Uh, the ancient accounts largely mirrored the life of Jesus. Let's just say that were the case. It's not at all the case. And all you have to do is go back to the primary source documentation regarding ISIS and uh, uh, Osiris and, and uh, Mithras and, and, you know, all, there's a whole bunch of these and see what they say. And and born of a virgin? No, he wasn't. He was born under a rock. That wasn't a virgin. Raised from the dead? No, he wasn't. He was the Lord of the Underworld. You know. So I mean, just the facts aren't there. But let's just presume they were. They were exactly the same. Okay. Would that mean that then the story of Jesus must be false? And now I'm going back to my illustration here. You couldn't be Michael Shermer because all these other people claim to be Michael Shermer, and he says, "I, "I promise you." I'm the real Michael Shermer. I say prove it. Now, how is he going to prove it? Mm-hmm. What do you think? How, if I asked you your name, Amanda, I said, prove that you're Amanda. Um, show you my permit or my ID or oh, Okay, God bless you. Show you my permit. Okay, yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: All right. God bless you. Yes, that's exactly right. That is exactly the right answer. I usually hear driver's license, but I understand that, why I that. That's what I get for picking on a kid, you know. No, it's perfect. You give me your bona fides. Here's my proof. Here's my bona fides. Okay, then you look at the bona fides, and so those are pretty good. So what are the bona fides for Jesus of Nazareth? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the primary source historical documents about the life of this man of antiquity. What do historians use when they want to find out about the details of the life of this man from antiquity? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the only thing they have to go by, by and large, for detail. Now, there are 17 uh, secular documents that make reference to Jesus outside of the those documents, the biblical documents. And you could throw in there the uh, Paul and Peter and John because they write things about Jesus in their own letters. So that's also primary source historical documentation. But when you go back to that, you can test to see whether this is reliable or not with regards to the details of the life of this man. And the fact is, using the standard methods of historiography, the Gospels come up with flying colors. I mean, Jesus is the best attested character of, the, of, of that period of time. Nobody has more information, really, about him than Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, so how, how is it people say, well, this is just a rebirth of the, or a re, an invention of these, variation of these old myths, when he's a man of history who's got documentation about him. He's got bona fides. So you cannot say Jesus' life looks like their life, these myths, and therefore Jesus was a result of those myths. That's reverse order. C.S. Lewis said on a different topic but same point, first you have to show that a man is mistaken before it makes sense to ask why he's mistaken or how he happened to be mistaken. Let me say that again. First you have to demonstrate that a person is mistaken before it makes sense to ask the question, why is he mistaken or how did he happen to be mistaken? Okay, So in this particular case, you look at the documents about Jesus. Now, if it turns out that the documents about Jesus are a total sham, and there's no credibility historically to them at all, then you might say, well, where do these things come from anyway? Oh, well, people are in the habit of making this story up and this is another iteration. That would be the right order. But you don't look back and see these old old examples of, of, even if they did match, these old myths, and say, since there are old myths like that, that means Jesus must be a myth too. That's the wrong order. And that's just like me telling Michael Shermer you couldn't be Michael Shermer because a bunch of people have claimed it. So there's a little thumbnail sketch of how I argue in that particular article to give you more substance. Yes, sir? Uh, you talked about uh, asking the person why they believe what they believe their burden of reversing the burden of proof right now at that time if that person is not really interested in justifying himself but sort of like that is something that works for me and it's more of a instead of a rational
1: reply yeah. if they just have a pragmatic approach right it's always worked for me I'm not really questioning us, I'm not trying to defend it but okay. this works for me I'm fine. You know,
0: right. I'm not even saying that your truth and my truth or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But still, you know, I'm
1: not really thinking it through as deeply. This is fine. Right. I'm OK. I'm content. Okay. How do you approach a person like okay, that?
0: OK, what I would do in that circumstance is I'm going to ask a few more questions. So I'm going to say, so when you say it works for you, what do you mean by that? Well, I, it could, they could mean a number of things. Maybe they say, well, it, it makes me happy, or I make money, or something. I don't know, whatever it is. So, oh, okay, I thought you were saying that this is actually true, but you're saying it doesn't matter whether it's true or not, right? So I'm going to keep drawing them out. And, and, or, and maybe I'll say, so you mean you don't care whether the thing is true or not. You're just What you care about is whether it makes you feel good. Are there any limits to that? I mean That's what I'm asking them. So as long as you feel good... That's right. You, and that's the way you feel about other people? I mean, maybe I'd ask a question like, so people can do whatever they want as long as it makes them feel good. But what if what they, makes them feel good makes you feel lousy? Now what? So I, 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 I don't know. Some people, you are not going to be able to move or get to respond. Uh, the tactical approach is not a silver bullet. It's not a magical thing that makes everything work. It's a way of maneuvering through these conversations. But you're going to find people that just are not gonna—they're not gonna nibble. You know, they they're think, "Hey, I don't really care. I'm happy the way I'm at. You know, don't rock my boat." All right. I'm looking for the person who's looking for me. Clearly, at that moment, the Holy Spirit is not working in their lives. And so, if the Holy Spirit's not working in their lives, there's nothing I'm going to do that's going to make a difference. So uh, some people, you just let them go. You know, When Jesus, think of John chapter 6. John chapter 6 was uh, marked a turning point in Jesus' ministry. He had a period of time when he was very, very popular, worked miracles, fed 4,000 and fed 5,000. And in fact, John 6, the setting there is having just fed the 5,000. And this is called the Bread of Life Discourse. Now, Jesus had four major discourses in his life. The uh, Sermon on the Mount, the Bread of Life Discourse, Uh, the the Olivet Discourse, and then the Upper Room Discourse, his last conversation with his disciples. Uh, And that's in John, like, 13 to 17. So you've got these big chunks of Jesus' teaching. But in the Bread of Life Discourse, Jesus angered a lot of people. They were ready to make him king, and he challenged them. He says, you're coming here because you want to see a miracle, like I fed the 5,000. And then he also said, you're coming here because you're looking for a free meal. He said, don't hunger for the bread that perishes, but hunger for the bread that comes down from heaven. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. That's where that all is. And people went, that's a little bit much because it was illegal to drink blood of any kind for the Jews. And they went, oh, gross me out. I'm out of here. When the disciples left, massive amounts of disciples turned their back and walked away. Jesus did not call them back. He let them go. And in fact, when John, when he turned to the, his the smaller group, you know, he had the 12 disciples, but he also had a larger group of 70. And then on 120, he had, he had varying levels of followers. But the 12 were the closest to him. And then within that, he had a tighter group of Peter, James, and John. But he said to the 12, Are you not also going to leave? Are you going to go? And he's not being apolog- he's not saying, Please don't go. I'll be all alone. Nobody's following me. No, he just laid it out, and he let people respond the way they would. And Peter said, "You know, where are we going to go? Uh, you have the words that give eternal life." Now I know that the disciples didn't like what Jesus said any better than anybody else. You know, they were always mystified by Jesus and confused all the way to the end about some very important things. But but G- but um, but Peter understood. He said, "I don't understand." He, What Peter did understand is not everything that Jesus taught, but who Jesus was. He was the guy who later said, you're the Christ, the son of God, you know. So we're not, where are we going to go? You're the guy. You have the words of eternal life. So in situations like you're facing, we communicate the truth. And if the masses turn on their heel and they move in the other direction, we let them go. That's my view. That's what Jesus did. I'm not responsible for those people. I do the best I can, but if they're going to go, they're going to go.
1: All right, well, we're going to have more opportunities for a Q&A later on. Let's give uh, Greg a Thank you. appreciative